Well, as Roy mentioned, it's good to see more people back, and we do have space to move the curtains back and to put additional chairs and still stay separated at a, at a good distance. And so if you're still watching online and you feel comfortable being there, your, your young kids, continue on. We're glad we have the capability to broadcast directly live to you guys. But if you do feel comfortable coming back, uh, we have the space for you, as was mentioned. So kind of start off uh, this morning with just a very silly illustration. Imagine that I had an encounter with God, all right? This is all just make-believe. This didn't happen, okay? Uh, I had an encounter with God. I have had encounters with God, but not about this, okay? And God gave me, he came in to me and gave me the supernatural ability to be able to throw a ball beyond what should be humanly possible, okay? So he, he came and he, and he met with me and he said, I'm going to come inside you and I'm going to give you this incredible ability that you can just throw a ball beyond what anybody else can even imagine, okay? And then I take this ball here and, Jerry, you ready for this? All right, um, and, and I take it. I'm going to throw left-handed just because I, I look stupid throwing left and this is probably about the best effort I get. All right, go ahead, stand up, Jerry. All right, scoot back. You don't have to catch this, no pressure, all right? And I throw this as, as hard as I can, okay? Sorry, thanks, Charlie, for covering me there. Bad throw. Left hand, like I said. What would you say? You, you would instantly look at me and say, what a joke, right? To claim that you can do that and then not be able to do it, then clearly that didn't happen, and you would question that. Well, I, I use that as an illustration for this. Anybody here that's a Christian and knows your Bible at all, you know that we claim that the Holy Spirit has moved inside of us and has taken up residence in us. And the Holy Spirit in Scripture has given us, according to the Word of God, the ability to have power to be a witness for him beyond what should be our normal capacity and ability. Yet, kind of like throwing that ball, many of us look at our lives and we're like, whoa, the reality does not match up with what you claim at all. So what's, what's wrong? Is it you or the word of God that's the, the problem here? Are you something that's not right in your relationship with God? Or is the Holy Spirit not coming through and the claims of the Bible are not true? Well, think about that because that's exactly how we're going to finish up Mark today. Jesus says, go into all the world. He says, go. And he says, you don't have to go it alone either. Because I'm going to indwell you, and I'm going to give you the ability to go in power and to share in power. And we oftentimes are like, oh, I'm scared. I can't do it. This is impossible. I'm not naturally good at this. And we come up with lots of reasons not to go. Jesus said to go, and we don't have to go it alone. And I want to just, before we pray and jump into Mark, I want to read one verse from John. This is John 16, 7. Jesus made this bold and shocking claim. He says, I tell you the truth. He's talking to his disciples. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, who's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Wow. Right? Jesus said, it's better. It's better that I leave. Because now you're going to get the Holy Spirit to personally indwell you and give you power. And I'm sure the disciples, as normal, were scratching their heads saying, really? There's no way this is true. Jesus says, it's to your advantage. So as we pray, I want you to think about yourself. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, this is not about guilt 
Like, oh, I just don't tell people enough. This is not about this. This is about living in relationship with Jesus Christ and allowing his power to flow through you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that gives us truth, not just claims that are just unrealistic, but truth that we can live by, God, and truth that we can bank our lives and our existence upon. And God, I pray that as we finish up the book of Mark, that we will finish up in the way that seems so appropriate with Scripture, take action, giving us something that we need to do in response to all that we've heard. So we're not just hearers of the word, but we're doers of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to just recap real briefly last week. Last week I gave four reasons why the explanation that Jesus is risen from the grave is truth. It, it, it just has to be true. There's no other explanation to the fact that he rose from the dead. And here's where these things that I gave. The first was the disciples would not have believed and preached Jesus' resurrection if his body was still in the tomb. Okay, they were in Jerusalem, all right? This is an actual body that was laid in a tomb, which they knew whose tomb it was. It was made public. Anybody could have walked into that tomb and seen there was a body laying there. The body was gone. The disciples knew that the body wasn't there. So the second thing was Jesus was really dead. Jesus was really dead. This was attested by the centurion to Pontius Pilate, the ruler. He shoved a spear in the side of Jesus as if he wasn't dead. He was for sure dead then. Jesus was really dead. The third thing was women, by the account of Scripture, women discovered the empty tomb. Why is that significant? Because during that time period, women weren't considered uh, legitimate witnesses in court. And so for the Gospels to write that women were the ones who initially discovered it, it had to be true. There's no way that if somebody was fabricating and writing this stuff, they would make up that because it would undermine the very truth of the Gospel, the, the truth of the resurrection. So women discovered the empty tomb. And then four, on multiple occasions, different individuals and groups, hundreds of people, saw Jesus alive after his death. We have a historical account that people saw Jesus alive and interacted with Jesus after his resurrection. And then we come today, the fifth thing, which I believe is so compelling, which is this. The willingness of the early disciples to suffer persecution and even martyrdom for Jesus indicates they believed Jesus had raised. The willingness of these disciples to suffer persecution, and 10 of the 11 suffered as martyrs. John was exiled to an island for his faith in Jesus because they knew, they believed that Jesus had really risen from the dead. Because why else would they risk themselves for a dead Messiah? Why else would they have put their lives on the line for a guy who was dead and in a tomb or for a body they stole away from the tomb? You see, just makes no other sense. The most logical conclusion is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And today we're just going to kind of look at this, number five, how that radically changed the disciples' lives and talk about how Jesus took a bunch of misfits, a bunch of guys who couldn't even keep the truth straight and get them to change literally the world to the point where we're sitting here today and people around the world are studying, reading, looking at the word, either online or in person, because Jesus Christ rose again. So Mark chapter 16, and we're going to kind of 
briefly look at verses 9 through 20. Now, not to confuse you, if you're a newer believer here, you're not a believer, this may be slightly confusing to you. I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible. If you have your Bible open and you're looking there, you may see a little statement that says something of this nature. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. And you may look at that and you're like, uh, I don't understand. Why, why is that in there? Okay, well, we know, kind of like if we started the game. You've done the game before where if I go to Jake and I say, Jake, and I tell him a secret. And I tell him, you tell the next person a secret. And then you pass it along. By the time we went through this whole auditorium and got back to Dylan over here, it would not be the same thing that I started out. And so what happened is when the apostles wrote down scripture and they put down the words that the Holy Spirit gave them onto a parchment, onto paper, and then they had the original copies inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they would bring these into the churches, and they would read these. They would take them places, and they'd be read to people to encourage them, to inspire them, to follow Jesus. Well, what would happen naturally if you carried this in? You, there's no copy machines, no pictures to scan or anything. You'd take them to a church, and somebody would say, hey, I want a copy of that. Can we get a copy of that? And Paul would say, yes, absolutely. Timothy would say, sure. And a scribe would take a pen, and he would begin to carefully and meticulously copy this down. But they were more concerned about the message of the gospel than they were, which we care deeply about, and they would care, have cared about, but maybe not understanding the full implications of this, that everything, I had to get this completely perfect. And so as you can imagine, there would be, just like the story circulating around the room, there would be minor mistakes made in these copies. Well, the earliest manuscripts of Mark don't have the passage of Scripture that we have in today. So those would be the, most, the closest. So that would be Tiffany to Jake, two persons away. That would be very, very close. And so we know the message that Tiffany had would be more accurate than the message that ended up on this side of the room. So we wanted to go to those manuscripts and trust those manuscripts more than we do a manuscript that may be way over here. Does that make sense? Okay, you got that? And so the earliest manuscripts don't have this section of Scripture in it. And also, as you look at this, you see that the vocabulary is not kind of like the rest of Mark. As you've studied with this, you see that there's a, this seems just a little bit different parts of it. And there's 18 words that are used in this little expression, this little section that weren't used by Mark in any other place in this book. And so therefore concluding that this was probably later added later. Now, I don't think it was malicious or added to deceive anybody because we're going to see from this chart that I'm going to put up here is that all of these passages of Scripture, except for one little expression, find another place. Go ahead with that little chart, guys. Uh, find its, its place in other passages of Scripture. So you see that as you walk through Mark, all these things are found in other places. So probably the scribe said, you know, this ending seems really abrupt and we need to match this up with the other Gospels. So let's just add in those other things and make it match up. But I think what they miss in this was this was very much Mark's way of dealing with Scripture and, and writing Scripture. Mark was very much like we, we've seen it quick and, and fast and, and doing story after story after story. And he uses this word astonishment 12 or 13 times in his gospel. So I think Mark is purposely leaving us in this place of astonishment. Jesus is risen. Wow. He's risen from the dead and leaves his, his readers in that way. But it does make sense why the scribes would say, hey, let's make this match up. And so there's nothing, as you look at these manuscripts, 
all the differences in most of our manu- the majority of our manuscripts, thousands and thousands of manuscripts, the differences are very, very minute, really small, minor stuff. There's no major doctrine that has been compromised by having manuscript after manuscript being written. And so we can trust Scripture completely, but we can trust it also because we have people who study and research and know the original languages, and they put little comments in your Scripture, not to confuse you, but to give you clarity that our gospel can be trusted. So as we look at this, these passages, know that the passages we're looking at are found in other gospels as well. So verse 14, to say all that, to get to, to verse 14, what we call the Great Commission. Afterwards, he appeared to the leaven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. So if you compare this to Mark or Luke chapter 24, let me kind of set the scene where what's going on here. Luke tells us that Jesus had this walk on a, the road to Emmaus, that he appeared to these guys who were walking down the road, and he began to tell them how that the prophets and everything pointed to him. And then at the end of the walk to Emmaus, we learn that Jesus, they kind of like look at him like, well, you're Jesus. And it says like instantly he was just, he was gone. He, he just disappeared from their sights. And so this passage of scripture corresponds because this is where Jesus appeared next before the 11 disciples who were hunkered down in a room and he comes to them and he, he basically rebukes them because they had doubted the eyewitnesses account that he was alive. But what's interesting in the Luke account that Jesus, again, just appears. When I was a kid and I'd hear these passages of scripture taught or read, I, I, I was so fascinated with the fact that Jesus could just like, his resurrected body could just appear from you know, different places. And I was like, man, one day when I'm resurrected, the resurrected body, and I'm in the, in the new kingdom and the new heavens and new earth, then we can just like go through walls and we can just appear places. And our bodies, although they'll be physical, we're not phantoms, we're not ghosts, just like Jesus wasn't a phantom or a ghost. We had this incredible ability. And you know what else I found solace in as a kid? And I think I still do it this day. In the Luke passage, he asked for something to eat. And so I'm like, wow, that's great. My glorified body, I still want to eat. And I love to eat. So that's a good thing. So you see Jesus, he's real. He's, he, he can teleport. He can do these amazing things. But he's still a, a, a real person they could touch. And they could feel the, the nail prints on his hands and, the, and, the, and, the, and on his side. And then in verse 15, when he rebukes them for not believing, he says to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So go and tell this message, tell this gospel, tell the good news. And if people believe it and they're baptized to show that they believe it, They're going to be saved, but those who don't believe it, don't accept this message, they're condemned. And think about this. By the time of Jesus' ascension, Jesus had ministered and spread his message to approximately 1%, less than 1% of the known world. The area where he was at there in Palestine, 1% of the entire inhabited earth. His ministry encompassed a very little region in a big world. Yet, we find him here commissioning these tax collectors, these fishermen, who days earlier scattered in fear. They were scared for their lives. They ran off. He commissions them to evangelize the other 99% of the world. He says, go in boldness and do this. Think about that. 
I mean, it, it seems a little unrealistic. It seems a little shocking that Jesus would ask his disciples to do this. Because we know what these guys have been like as we track through Mark. These guys are unreliable. I mean, you have Jesus like point blank telling them, okay, I'm going to be crucified. And three days later, I'm going to raise again from the, and from the dead. And even as he's talking about this, they are talking over here about which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus saying, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And they're like, I'm going to be greatest. I'm going to have the place of prominence in the kingdom. What? Jesus, uh, we're talking about some serious stuff over here. And when Jesus got to the point where he was crucified, they were shocked and they ran off because they didn't listen. And these are the guys that he's commissioning with the mission to go and proclaim the gospel to all people. To tell everyone the good news to the known world. And you know what? The disciples and the followers of Jesus, the early followers of Jesus, in a hundred years made an incredible impact in the world. They spread the, the, the gospel to, to nearly what was the most, most of the known world at that time. Unreal, the energy and the passion that they had. And so Jesus says to go and make disciples. What does that mean to make disciples? He, he tells them to go and introduce people to Jesus and those who respond to this message about Jesus, then teach those people to be worshipers, to be servants, and to be witnesses for Jesus. Let me say that again. So you go and you tell them, here's who Jesus is. He rose from the dead. And we should worship him. If we're his disciples, we should worship him. We should be servants of his. And we should be witnesses for him. Because that's what a disciple is. A disciple is not just someone who, yeah, I believe in Jesus and I prayed that prayer. A disciple is someone who's been trained and taught, the word we use, discipled, to be a worshiper, to be a servant, to go on their own and be that witness for Jesus Christ. And we don't do this as a church through mechanical, strategic, some plan that happens that's just about, you know, we just do these numbers and do this stuff. That's not how you accomplish this. It doesn't just involve the well-trained elite elders or group of people who are the experts to go out and sell the gospel. That's not who does this. All of us are called to do this. And I love Bill Hall, his, his um, definition of, about discipleship and how it occurs. Let me read this to you and it'll be on the screen. Discipleship occurs when a transformed person radiates Jesus to those around her. It happens when people so deeply experiencing God's love that they could do nothing other than affect those around them. The heart of being a disciple involves living in intimate union and daily contact with Christ. Do you see what he says? It's so true. It, when you live in intimacy with Christ, when you know Christ, you have daily time with Christ then it just begins to change your life. You begin to radiate. This becomes what you're about. And so rather than, as one pastor told me, literally, he, he, when it came to evangelism, he said, you've got to make sure you close the deal. And, and, I, and I was like, what? Close the deal? This is not a used car sales you know, job we're doing here. This is souls and people's lives. These are individuals who we build relationships with. And you don't just close the deal. I'm done with that. Now next, next thing, investing in discipleship is, is, a, is a process. Today, Dylan is going to be baptized. You're going to hear an amazing story about his transformation, just coming back to Christ. 
and wanting to be baptized today. But you know what? Uh, we've lined up people in this church. I've talked to Jerry right here. I'm going to introduce him to Dylan afterwards, who's volunteered to say, I'll, I'd be glad to, to, to invest what I can in him and other people. Because we don't say, Dylan, now you're on your own. Go out there and live for Jesus. But we come and we train and we help him understand the word and know the word and, and keep each other in accountability, not just him, but each, all of us in accountability so we stay focused on the mission and keep the main thing the main thing because we all have a tendency to drift toward complacency, apathy, uh, just my life for me type attitude, my comforts. That's where we naturally drift to. And so as a church, and that's one thing that, that's, that's so tough about being away from the church body, you can hear a message, but there's not the church body that's encouraging you and account, holding you accountable and, and spurring you on, to use the scripture's word there, toward love and good deeds. And so we, as a body, encourage each other and we disciple each other. And then verse 19, so then, uh, it, it says, verse 19, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, to the disciples, was taken up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God. And I wonder how long the disciples stood there just staring at the sky. It's like, Jesus, I can't believe you're leaving us. You're abandoning us. And we learned from Acts the truth that an angel had to go and tell them, hey, quit staring up into heaven. you got a job to do. you got work to do. And, and these guys were utterly dependent upon Jesus. So they can't imagine living the life that Jesus had called them to live without Jesus being there with them. We know they struggled enough with Jesus there with them. So what's the deal? What, what's happened? Well, the fact is that Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you alone. In John 14, he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. That You're going to have this comforter. You're going to have this counselor. You're going to have this advocate, the Holy Spirit, who would come and you're gonna he's going to remind you of my teachings. And he's going to empower you and equip you in a way that's even better than if I was walking here with you physically. Wow. Jesus says, it's going to be better for you that I go away. That you're going to have more power now that I'm gone. And in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and they received the Holy Spirit, the disciples didn't stay in the room basking and saying, whoa, let us worship you here in this moment forever and ever and stay here. No, they worshiped God for sure, but then they left and they moved and they took action and they burst into the world to change the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the power of the Holy Spirit is definitely spurred on through worship, through seeing God, recognizing God, through loving Jesus. But the Holy Spirit propels us that we don't just sit, we move, we make a difference, we impact those around us. And so this this bursting out for the disciples, this was the beginning of the church as we know it. And, they, they, and Jesus took these people who were scared to death, as I said, Peter, who denied Jesus three times. And then we see just a few days later in the book of Acts where he's standing up preaching boldly, proclaiming Jesus. And people were scratching their head. Is this like Peter, the same guy, the guy who was scared to death, the guy who denied Jesus three times? And all of a sudden now he's speaking in power. He's coming across, and people are astonished by the courage that he has. And let me just encourage you. Well, we want to learn as much about the Bible as we can, and we want to know as much about theology as we can. You don't have to know everything in order to be a witness. Why? What's a witness do? If you witness something, when somebody says, oh, tell me what happened there at that intersection, that, that wreck, and you say, whoa, here's what happened. That car ran that light, and this other car came. You just tell what happened. And that's being a witness is just telling what happened to you. 
If your life is different, if something has changed because the Holy Spirit has indwelled you and Jesus took you from the kingdom of darkness and now you're in the kingdom of light, wow, you want to just be a witness to that. Wow, I don't know exactly how to tell you, but it's different. Things are different in my life now. I follow Jesus. And verse 20 says, they went out and preached everywhere. And in the parallel passage, Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the Holy Spirit propels us. The gospel message, the, the great commission, Jesus, he compels us. He gives us what we need. And then the Holy Spirit propels us to live out that mission. And so every Scripture teaches every true Christian has the Holy Spirit. Everyone who claims to be a Christian, if you're really legitimately a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, Scripture does tell us that we can grieve the Spirit, that we can not walk in the Spirit, we can live our own way versus living the way the Spirit wants us to live. But now we have the capacity through our intimate relationship with God through his word, through knowing his word, through uh, memorizing his word, allowing his word just to saturate in us, we can walk in the spirit and we can produce the fruit of the spirit. And our lives can be totally different and totally changed. And, and, and we can be the people like Peter who went from being scared to death to being bold for the kingdom of God. And one thing I, I think is important to remember here as we finish up, the Holy Spirit is not a force. He's not some power source. The Holy Spirit is a, a, a person. He's a member of the Trinity. And while I think Scripture definitely guides us to pray to the Father through the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name, I think it's also legitimate to pray at times to the Holy Spirit, to pray to Jesus, to pray to God the Father. And I think sometimes, you know, we just forget. We just Kind of the Holy Spirit is sort of like that weird, you know, Star Wars force that comes behind us that helps us. And He's not a person there that really truly makes a difference in the way that you live your life and propels you to live your life. And so today, as we close up and we move into communion in a few minutes after baptism, I want you to just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I have neglected you. And I confess that. And I want to walk by the power of the Spirit. I want, I want this power, what Mark 13, 11 says. He, it says he, Jesus tells the disciples, when they bring you to trial and they deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you're going to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit who speaks. Jesus' word, not, word's not mine. doesn't mean you're going to be infallible, that you're going to be perfect, you're going to nail it every time, but if you're walking in the Spirit, something's different. The Holy Spirit brings the words of Jesus to mind. The Holy Spirit gives you boldness and courage like it gave Peter. Like he gave Peter, sorry. He gave Peter. And he allows us to live life completely different. If there's ever a time we need Christians walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's right now. Go into all the world. If there's anyone who should love people of all nations, tongues, and tribes, it should be Christians. We should... Um, despise this, these attitudes that are dividing our society because Jesus gave us a mission to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves to go into all the world and preach the gospel. 
How could there be anything but love that compels us, the Holy Spirit that compels us, if we truly, truly are walking in the Holy Spirit? And so our mission is easy and it's clear. It's easy to see. Go. Go. And sure, it's going to be difficult at times. It's going to be scary at times. But we're not going alone. Jesus gives us everything that we need. If you've been here over the last weeks since we started the shelter-in-place, social distancing thing, we've had an interview every week um, after the message. And today for the interview is, I told Dylan not to worry because it's, he only has to answer two words, all right? So I, I know that he may not you know, feel comfortable being up here, but he, uh, he's going to come up here and stand with me. And I'm just going to ask him why he wants to be baptized. And then he's, he's going to tell you on his video. But let me just ask you, Dylan. This is Dylan Bush. Dylan, have you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation apart from everything else? And do you want to be baptized today to let the world know, to let everyone know that you're now a follower of Jesus Christ? Awesome. Give him a hand. And we're making a commitment to you. We want to help you in any way that we can because it is tough. It's difficult. But God has given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you your church family. And we want to help you to, to follow him wholeheartedly, okay? So watch Dylan's video, and while we're watching the video, we'll get him ready for baptism. My name is Dylan Bush. I've always been part of the church and believed in God from a young age. My grandfather was a pastor, and his dad was a pastor. Around 12 years old, I was hanging out with 17, 18-year-olds at that time, some 20. At their point in their life, they had already started drinking and going out and partying and stuff like that, so I kind of just got wound up in that lifestyle. What was one weekend turned to every weekend, and then every weekend of drinking turned into drinking and pills and that progressed. I'm still in the process now of recovery but I've been a drug addict for 15 years. I'm four months sober, no, no drop of alcohol, no weed, no pills, no drug at all. I swapped my bad habits out with good habits and even throughout that time of darkness God was always present. He never left me. Basically addiction to me was more so based off of um, repetition or my schedule, so I had a schedule set that I would wake up every morning and start drinking. Well, instead of waking up every morning and drinking, I started waking up and working out. I also have three jobs, something to keep my mind busy. Baptism to me is basically just that next step forward to show that this is the point in my life where I am making a change, whereas I've already made the change to live for God and not be on substance or I'll call her anything else, but it's my proclamation to the people. I don't always do perfect, and I fall short of God's glory, but and I just want to show this as a step to get closer towards Him. John actually, he gave me the study Bible, and he kind of marked Philippians for me. It basically speaks on humility. He wants us to live as He lived. People just need to know that they don't need to give up because. He won't give up on you. God will always be there. I'm excited to be baptized and show my faith in God and be reborn and live in His grace. The biggest problem for me was forgiving myself and thinking that God still loved me and that I was worth still being here. And don't ever, don't ever feel like you're worthless because <laughs> He'll bring you out of it. It's my privilege today to baptize you, Dylan, my friend.
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The old life is gone. The new life has begun.